Welcome to Forging Plowshares, a community dedicated to cultivating the peaceful kingdom of God. We hope this part of our ongoing conversation stimulates your mind and challenges your heart about what it means to be a follower of Jesus. Please stay tuned at the end of the podcast for a short message about our ministry. So the the theological point here, we might imagine that evil is a necessary part of the good. And of course, I think that's just abhorrent. But you understand that a large swath of Christianity, Calvin literally says this, you know, Mm -hmm. that God does the evil, and this is part of the mystery. But that there's a gap, you know, nothingness, sin, death, drive, evil. The danger is that in the Christianities that we practice, that these things are not overcome. And I think they are overcome in Christ, but also in this practical way that Wink is describing. What we're saying is, oh, evil is subject to the good. That evil is not finally, you know, in Calvinism, it's not subject to the good. But the good arises from and is ultimately subject to evil. And I'm afraid that any system in which we allow the cosmos to be turned over to nothingness, whether it's some persons, I'm just saying that there has to be a universal aspect to the gospel. I'm not claiming that I understand it or how it's worked out. I'm just making a simple point here, that apart from this apocatastasis, this universalism, there is the danger that the fall is at the origin of the subject. That's what Hegel says. You have no human subject apart from the fall. Of course, Hegel didn't believe Genesis 3, but he read Genesis 3 and says, boy, it's a good, sure a good thing they sinned so they could know good and evil. And many people, you know, this is really uh, the, the kind of the idea, oh, a good thing they fell so we can have salvation in Christ. What we're describing is, no, this is God's purposes from before the creation of the world. In biblical terms, you almost need the knowledge of good and evil. You almost need the serpent. You need the temptation and death in order for God's purposes to be worked out. That's not what Paul's saying. He said, no, those purposes were there from the beginning. Zizek calls himself a, a Pauline materialist, and he's primarily a Marxist. I do believe Marxism is a kind of Christian, you know, there there is a development of a Christian deconstruction of capitalism. And I think Zizek is doing the same thing at a psychoanalytic understanding. But in this understanding, the death of Christ, and Zizek talks a lot about the death of Christ, it doesn't overcome the gap of the reality of death and nothingness. It just plays with that gap. You know, this is the Hegelian notion, you know, Hegel takes Luther's phrase, the death of God, and repeats it, that God died on the cross, and Hegel says, yeah, that's right. And and God took death and nothingness up into himself, so that that is, in fact, the completion of who God is. This is German idealism. Nietzsche is going to complete that thought, but a lot, uh, this is Jürgen Moltmann. Jürgen Moltmann, I really admire, I really like Jürgen Moltmann, but he's a complete heretic, right? Because Moltmann is saying, yes, Moltmann is saying he's a, he is a Hegelian Christian, that God necessarily takes death and nothingness up into himself 
so that this is a part of who God is in Christ. I think that's missing it. Uh, I think that is a, a, a kind of dialectic in God himself. And so this is Zizek, you know, that death, but Zizek's just an atheist. Death and nothingness is at the foundation of human subjectivity. And nothing counted as something, he says, gives rise to the human subject. It is the ontological unreality. This is his language. He puts the, you know, it's not reality, but it's an unreality. But we need to lie. And the Lacanian subject is is working in and through that lie. I just take Zizek as an illustration of Paul's picture of the sinful subject. The place this takes us in a good way is that we can begin to speak of the self-participation in our own creation, right? That's what we're saying in Christ, that we are co-participants not only in a cosmic creation, but are in, in our own creation, in the creation of the human subject. That is, that there's a freedom of choice at the base of the human subject uh, that that is there in this play of, of creation. That is, we're responsible for our creation or lack thereof, and we can name it. And this is the dynamic of death. This is the Lacanian frame. And, of course, the danger is that a lot of Christianity sees creation as subsumed by or returning to nothing. In missing theosis, apocatastasis, this cosmic creation, uh, it's not clear that, that anything is fully grounded in, in, in existence. You know, what do we mean when we say existence? I think it's being described here in, in chapter 3 that we fully participate in who God is, the fully spiritual and rational creature fully participates in God. And this is Hart. David Bentley Hart says that through direct participation, we are then in, in our own origination, creation from nothing. Let me quote Hart. And only by this primordial ascent does humanity in its eternal multi-hypostatic reality as the eternal atom of the first creation, freely receive its being from its creator. And this, even though that ascent becomes on the threshold between the heavenly eon and time, a recapitulation of the fall, an individuating acceptance of entry into the world under the burden of sin, such that every soul is answerable for and somehow always remembers that original transgression. In that moment, the spiritual creature concurs in its own creation, and God hands the creature over to its own free self-determination. Here, naturally, the language of past and future can devolve all too easily into a mythology of individual guilt historically prior to any person's actual life. But of course, there was no fall back then in historical time, either for the race or for the individual. Rather, the fall happened uh, only as belonging to the temporal. It happened, or rather is happening, only as the lingering resistance of nothingness to that final joyous confession. 
take care of Paul's, you know, bowing the knee to Christ. The diminishing residue of the creature's emergence ex nihilo, for no creature can exist as spirit in God except under the condition of having arisen from nothingness in order to grow into his or her last end. That passage from nothingness into the infinite, which is always a free intentionality toward a final cause, is the very structure of created spiritual beings. They could not be spirit otherwise. I thought that was a beautiful passage. I need to jot down what you're reading from. This is uh, You Are Gods, the final chapter. By Hart? David Bentley Hart. And Matt can recommend matt keeps he's been selling me on this book for uh, several uh, for a long time i finally broke down and bought it the last chapter is worth the price of the book and i'm just saying that i've i've read the first chapter and the last chapter i'm not equating him but i just thought of walt whitman while you're reading how so i am many worlds uh i'll have it for next class heart in this last chapter to my mind is just centered on Irenaeus, he's centered on Maximus the Confessor, and he's explaining that understanding. I, I really like that part of the book. That sounds like a good post that on the wall. That's, that's like an exit door out of COVID for me. For me. Yeah, yeah. I think it's a beautiful picture of the exaltation of God. I think there's, you know, the picture of a final triumphant exaltation in which we're all all participating now what this is not it is you know when we have the cartesian cogito kind of the self-positing i or the psycho i think it's you know it's the defeat of that it's the defeat of the pauline eye you know the ego that's crucified there is a relinquishing and a willing deconstruction of this subject and i think we're naming the subject we're describing the dynamic of the subject. The I that would posit itself through itself freely and intentionally gives up on this project in Christ and thus is through the Spirit, you know, joined to the Father. If you don't understand Freud's Oedipus complex, this is all the Oedipal I is, the I that would be its own father or the Cartesian I. I think it's the Pauline I. I think that's really what Paul's saying. If God is not Abba, Father, well, then you would be your own father. That is your own creator, your own your own originator. And so I think there's a free and willing abandonment of that project. And the fall, the you know, I think this is a description of the fall that we've all are engaged in. We've we've said something, we've described fallenness that the subject in its fullness only emerges through pa this passage of relinquishing of this project and emerges as assenting to the eternal end, the continuation and completion of creation ex nihilo. And so that I think that's Paul's picture here, you know, that I bow my knee and all the nations of the earth, they are brought together. The other way, I don't necessarily need to do it, but the other way of approaching this that I think Paul is talking about this is in and through the Holy Spirit. Irenaeus does this. I've talked about this before. The, is this God's Spirit or the Holy Spirit? Yes, and it's the human spirit, right? It's all. It's life. 
that uh, the spirit, this is Irenaeus, when the spirit here blended with the soul is united to God's handiwork, the man is rendered spiritual and perfect because of the outpouring of the spirit. And this is he who was made in the image and likeness of God. By the way, Hart appeals to Irenaeus on this subject and, and at some length. Mm -hmm. And Hart's point about Paul is that Paul is ambiguous, purposely ambiguous on the meaning, on his usage of spirit. We're never quite, sometimes we're not sure. Is it the Holy Spirit? Is the human spirit? Hart's point is yes, it is both of those things. Am I following breadcrumbs to Christ saying, if, if you would, if you want to save your life, you, you must lose it? You bingo, that's it. That's it. That's the gospel in, in summary. That he who would save his life, he who would be his own father, he who would be his own originator, he who would do a Girardian system of self-salvation, he who has a sacrificial system of salvation, he who does human religion, you know, you just go through all the human projects, he who is a successful capitalist, uh, he who is a successful Marxist, he will lose his life. And in fact, in the human project, we lose our life because it is a, a, a making of nothing something. But he who would lose his life, give up on the project, relinquish the sacrificial system, give up on the security of a capitalistic notion of values. You know, you just go through. That that one who would will relinquish the human project will save his life. He has life. So Christ says that in all four Gospels in slightly different ways. And I notice Wink, you know, points to that. And I think, you know, that is the, you that he who would give up on the domination system which seems like just the only system we have. We have to get an understanding of how pervasive these systems are. Sometimes it's hard to understand how we're all shaped by capitalism or, you know, because it, it is just so pervasive. And so it, I think it sometimes is hard to break open that shell and see an alternative. I presume that's what the gospel is. I think that's part of the advantage of going to another culture, by the way. You know, I my, spent 20 years in Japan, and in Japan, you can see how the, the, the culture is just captures people. They're, they're so shaped by the culture of which they're a part that you, you, you have to almost break out of that system. That's not just true of Japanese, that's true of us, but it's harder for us to see it because we're inundated in the self-salvation systems. Let me do one more heart quote. So Hart depicts this as beginning and ending. He calls for willing surrender through free participation. This is the ultimate reason that the first moment of the creature's being is at once a vocation issued by God, and yet also an act of free self-positing on the part of the creature. Just as the Holy Spirit is not some limit, this is after, you know, he's done the thing with Irenaeus talking about the Holy Spirit. Holy Spirit is not something added to man. The Holy Spirit is the completion of, of who we are. So just as the Holy Spirit is not some limited psychological individual consciousness possessed of an isolated self, 
who is first himself and who then only laterally assents to the Father's self-utterance in the Logos, but is instead hypostatic as God's own eternal assent to and delight in his own essence as manifested in the Son. So also the Spirit in us is nothing but a finite participation in that eternal, infinite act of divine affirmation and love. The spiritual creature exists as always uh, in its origin and its end. You know, this sounds very Maximian here. Holy surrendered to God and the chiasmus of the Spirit in us, our creation and deification, is always the Spirit rejoicing in the love of Father and Son. The inmost reality of the Spirit in each of us, that is, is nothing but that of joyous accord with and ec ecstatic ascent uh, into God. And so every creature, creaturely spirit, freely wills its own existence. And I guess we can freely will our own non-existence, but I assume that that is defeated. It's not a freedom exercised apart from God, or who the creature is in God. How could we think otherwise? You know, there is no nature apart from grace. There is no nature apart from God. The eternal yes of God to the creature is always already the creature's eternal yes to its creator. For the latter exists only within the eternal yes of the Father to his own image in the Son, in the delight of the Spirit. And this is the Son's yes to the will of the Father. And this is also the Spirit's eternal yes to the Father's full expression in the Son. And in the end, these are all one and the same yes. Our willing acceptance of, our allegiance to, you know, there is this possibility of a yes to God's unfolding creation and completion of the subject in the Spirit. The possibility of the ex nihilo Maybe it still threatens, but for Paul, the subject precedes and exceeds the possibility of death. That's all we mean. Uh, and this constraints of this, you know, the, the living dead or the eye. So there's the possibility. But I think the necessity, I'm using language here that I formerly would not have used, and I've come to think it's the only possibility that because of the, this, there is a necessity due to the, the goodness of God, of who God is. In other words, God is good. That's our, our basic affirmation. That there has to be then a human subject that exists apart from sin and exists apart from that fall back into nothingness. And I think that that then, uh, that in Christianity, we have to acknowledge the end of creation in this participation, divinization, theosis. And if it doesn't, I'm afraid that Christianity is just a kind of, it's a, it's a kind of atheism, right? Uh, that's the danger, is that we just affirm a kind of atheistic understanding of who God is in the human subject, in which subjectivity requires death, sin, and nothingness. Yeah, just like another Elks Club or the Moose Lodge or whatever. But I'm happy to hear somebody say, oh, that can't be right. Can you re rewind? I didn't catch all that. There is a possibility of a yes to the unfolding or 
Yeah, there's a possibility of a yes, and there's the possibility of a no. I emphasize the yes, but and, and of course, there is the possibility of a no to the unfolding creation. This idea I kept, I didn't use this, but it actually kept echoing in mind. There's a Japanese, uh, she's a Japanese-American. She does, she, she's a comedian, and she has this wonderful routine she does. You know, she gets, she gets in an embarrassing situation or something. She says, you know, I, I never asked to be here. I never asked to be born. Uh, I just, well, I think we all kind of feel that a little bit. Hey, I, nobody, you know, as for my, well, I think we actually are being asked. I think that we are participants in our own creation. Uh, I think that's what God, that there really is a kind of respect for, I don't know, for, for our spirituality, for our, you know, who we are and, and what's being described here. Paul, in the, um, in the idea of the, the yes, this kind of almost inescapable, participation that it seems like we're talking about. How is that different? Now, I know Calvin has a double predestination, but in the, in the ideas of universalism, is there not a predestination that's unavoidable? Or, and, you know, is, how does that fit in with concepts of free will and how that all yeah. comes together? First of all, it's not a determinism of a Calvinist bent. But it is a will, in other words, I think there is the consent. That's what I think we all feel this, that our consent in this thing, our free will, if you will, and I, I'm never sure, you know, are you truly free outside of Christ, you know, or are you an, an, uh, enslaved? I, I think that there is a kind of, there's a, a kind of determination that needs to be broken open there. But the early church did not, they, they were staunch defenders of free will of some kind. That is, that in some way, as spiritual creatures, that we we do have the possibility of yes and no. So to, to answer your question, you know, is, is this unfolding an overriding of human spirituality? I don't think it is, but I think it is uh, the only possibility for us truly being free subjects. So it's not a, a Calvinist determinism, but it is the winning out of the good in human life. That is, that the, the participation in Christ opens up a freedom that maybe we only had in part, but now there is an opening of this freedom in the defeat of evil, in the power over sin, that we're no longer slaves to this thing. And of course, the way we become slaves to it is we, we enslave ourselves, so that even there, I, I don't know that there's a complete relinquishing, but eventually we, we do become, you know, I think that we turn ourselves over this enough. So I like your question, but, but I think that the full determination is a determination of human freedom, spirituality, and the potential of being fully human. Is that semi yeah, no, I, Sure. I'm, it's it's hard stuff to wrap your mind around, for sure. <laughs> um, you know, and especially when you're steeped in, in, in ideas that haven't, you know, expressed participation in God that way. And I, th I, I think there is a real element that we place a super high value on free will, maybe higher than we should. Uh, in the way that it's understood. But I think the argument you made, it sounds a lot like, you know, some of the things Hart said in that all shall be saved, where you're you're not free until you have a full 
and this is going to be a bad paraphrase, but a, a full revelation of, of what God is like. And once you see that, you know, you, you are, and I don't, I can't use the right language. Certainly you're not compelled, but you would never choose anything different. So there is an element of free will. It's just that there's, there's really nothing else to choose at that point. And I don't, I don't know. That's probably a poor understanding of uh, that, but I think it's at least headed that direction. Yeah. Yeah. And I did find that part of Hart's book. I found it very compelling. I, I was convinced by it and we all just sort of know that's true. Sure. That, that people are just shaped by the situation, the culture, the context in which, which they find themselves. You know, you're born into a Hindu country, you become Hindu. You're born into a Muslim country, you become Muslim. You're born into an alcohol. You know, it, you can just name the, the powers that maybe, ex and, and obviously to picture somebody able to break out of that easily is, I think he does capture that. Uh, yeah, Jim. Uh, I, I might be connected. I might have read something like this. Baby elephants are begin training. They just tie like a thin string to their leg, sort of like bailing cord. And as, as it grows, they keep the same string. And the full-grown elephant being tethered by this, you know, eighth-inch piece of string that in its mind, it's just unable to break it. Yeah. Yeah. Never thinks of it. Yeah. So I, I'm contradicting myself a little bit. And that is, I want to agree with that picture that in, in a sense, we are born into a kind of slavery, into a kind of determined system already. I'm presuming that there is also a preservation in some sense of our capacity to get out of that. And I, I'm not saying that I completely comprehend that, but I think we kind of feel that. But I think the opposite is clearly true. We can understand how breaking this thing open, the domination systems, how being taken out of those systems is freeing. And we can then we there's truly free. We can truly be participants in our own free creation. The questions here this week, I, I several of you had some some good answers, and I, if you would like to uh, or. I'd ask you to share on them. Um, what does Paul mean by mystery? I think we've answered that. How is it revealed? Is it still a mystery in the sense that we don't know it? And what is the impact of the meaning of the mystery of on our behavior? You know, this mystery revealed when it comes to people different. What is the meaning of the mystery on, on our individual behavior? Okay, it's becoming more reality in the new communities that Paul is fostering and writing letters to. It is still a mystery in a sense because most believers just have not been exposed to believers in other cultures or different cultures within driving distance. I guess I'm thinking of current Christians. The impact for me is that my awareness of Christianity is unraveled and, and unfolded into a larger appreciation when I'm exposed to other cultures' experience of the Christian life. In my experience, belief can become narrow when we are limited to a routine expression of it. We're limited in our exposure to other facets reflected from different worldviews. Yeah, I, I think that what is taking place, I like your answer, what is taking place is in the churches we're being enculturated into a system in which we're not dependent on the dialectic 
of Jew-Gentile, of racial difference, of male-female, of, you know, that being an identity, a necessary part. And so it all, I, I presume that salvation is a reenculturation and a departure then. And I don't mean a destruction of culture. Uh, I think there is a preservation, a carrying over. Uh, you know, we're all still going to speak English. We're going to be either Canadian, a very strange culture, or American, uh, or Japanese, you know, whatever your cult, you're cult, you're going to bring that into the church. But I also think that we're introduced to a new cultural understanding in the unity and peace that is there. So yeah, I, I, re- I liked your answer there. That in some way, going to church uh, should not be a provincial affair, but in fact should be entering another cultural you know, if or if you want to take it further, another socio-political, cultural, lig- religio-psychoanalytical context. <laughs> How do we remake this, the human psyche? I don't think we remake it apart from this departure from the dialectic of race, the dialectic of nationality, or the dialectic of politics. And so I, I think the you know this is the peace of Christ that is revealed in the gospel. Unfortunately, what we see is a church caught up in the dialectic so so often. Talking about being rooted and grounded in love, and how that um, how would we relate to other people, and what was that look like in a broken world? And uh, I said to be rooted and grounded in love, according to Paul's prayer requires an appreciation for and acceptance of the unity of all creation. The Spirit reveals this to us, and it is because of Christ's faithfulness. The comprehension of these measurements, which are multidimensional, are unbounded. They surpass knowledge. Being filled with the fullness of God recalls the temple being filled with God's glory and reminds us that we are His temple, His dwelling place. And it also looks forward to the eschatological fulfillment of this promise. At the end of the prayer, God is identified as the one who can do far more abundantly than all we ask or think. I think that our ability to relate to other people when we are rooted and grounded in that kind of love will be different in two ways. First, we will see others as they truly are, as part of God's creation. This gives them infinite value and makes them worth engaging with. Secondly, the resources that we have to engage others with will spring from an infinite well. Patience, forgiveness, and hope will be inexhaustible because they come from love, which comes from the infinite, the one who can do far more abundantly than all we think or ask. In a broken world, this love would look like healing. In the most difficult trials and relationships that are badly broken, whether these are personal, institutional, or even national, the loving party is looking for ways to heal these rifts. As Walter Wink said in this week's reading, Jesus is not advocating nonviolence merely as a technique for outwitting the enemy, but as a means of opposing the enemy in a way that holds open the possibility of the enemies becoming just also. Both sides must win. We are summoned to pray for our enemy's transformation and respond to ill treatment with a love that is not only godly, but also from God. And that's the end of his quote. In the best of mutually reciprocated loving relationships, the love between two parties overflows and provides healing for others. This seems best exemplified in a loving marriage where the children benefit from the love of the the parents have for each other and for them. And as the children mature, their love overflows in their relationships and love becomes something that multiplies exponentially. 
I really liked your answer. And I really like the picture of the temple. There's a lot of imagery of the temple overflowing, you know, overflowing with light, overflowing with water, you know, life. And of course, the picture is of, of the Paul is in this describing us as the temple of God and this overflowing, you know, rooted and grounded in love. So that I, I hope I was successful in saying this is an ontology. That is, this this love is an ontology that is counter to an originary violence, an originary, you know, agonistic struggle. What is being described is an originary love and an originary peace. Peace and love are the ontology, which may sound abstract, but I think that what Wink is doing gets at the power behind the thought, that we can take this abstract, what may be a fairly abstract thought, and it becomes quite practical uh, for us. I don't know. I, I guess I can sum it up. Sum it up. And saying, it kept coming back to my mind, if you have a wall that remains, you don't have the gospel in your teaching, you know, in your outlook on life and in your ethic. If there's a, if there's a wall that you kind of define and write into your theology, you don't have the gospel. So that's I think that's, yeah. In terms of Romans 2, I mean, uh, Ephesians 2, but appreciated the, um, yeah, I guess just the practical bits of all this. And just I hope we've hit it enough that Paul, you know, the apostle to the Gentiles, what's the grand mystery? Oh, the Gentiles are brought in too. Who are the Gentiles? That's everybody else. <laughs> yeah. Uh, for the Jews, they, you know, the Gentiles amounted to nothing. They were the other. They, you know, and they're losing that dialectic possibility in terms of the way we put it tonight. That is the mystery revealed, this cosmic, holistic, all-inclusive redemption. Yeah, and the two things, the unity of heaven and earth and the breaking down of the wall, unifying the Jew and Gentile, I thought that it corresponds to the first and second greatest commandments the vertical, the love of God, and the uh, horizontal love of the neighbor. And that gets at the spatial metaphor, the the width and depth and height and the fullness. I don't know. It seems like there's too much to say is the problem. That was my problem. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I'm using, I know last week and this week I, I, kept, I kept going to the psychoanalytic stuff. And I am just, I think it's illustrative. But I think we could illustrate it in many ways. You know, you can illustrate the same thing in several ways. I just find that, for me, that's helpful. But I hope it, I hope it is for everybody. I just picked up a book by Terry Eagleton, who is doing a whole book on Marx. You know, and as I was reading on Marx, I was thinking, oh, this he's doing exactly, you know, this is really just another example of the same thing. That Marx is a kind of Christian heretic on the order of a Zizek. You know, Zizek considers himself a Marxist. So, Matt Welch, we heard zero from you tonight. I've Are just you... been enjoying, like uh, Brian said, just listening. Okay. I thought, you'd, I thought you'd jump in there with some heart material. No, you were caught, you were hitting it all. I mean, I, um, I sent you a thing earlier today where um, – David Bentley Hart said he has a soft spot for Zizek and thinks he's the most brilliant or among the most brilliant readers of Hegel in the present day. 
Yeah, so my I, respect for Hart went up when you said that. Oh, <laughs> oh he's he, he yeah. does understand some things. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. I wish Hart could read your book. Uh, I wish Zizek would read my book. Yeah, <laughs> me too. I I suggested that to the publisher, but they didn't bite on it. Apparently, they. He he does. Zizek is the he's a wonderful endorser of books, and I, yeah. I'm always suspicious that he doesn't actually read any of them. You know, you know, <laughs> just go on and on about this is the best thing since sliced bread. I yeah. I don't think he read the book. <laughs> we should try to find his email and just send him a PDF. Yeah. All right. We'll take up next week. We'll see you on Tuesday. Good to see everybody. Thanks, guys. Right. God bless. You. Good night. Take care, guys. Good night. Forging Plowshares is a community dedicated to cultivating the peaceful kingdom by providing in-depth, transformative biblical and theological education and discipleship. If you have found this podcast valuable, please remember to share on social media. If you have questions about what you've heard, or if you'd like to learn more about how you can get involved with Forging Plowshares, or even support this ministry financially, please visit our website, forgingplowshares.org.